Before I get moving, I forgot to mention uh, Rob Klein turned 64 today, so send him a little text or a note. Uh, say happy birthday to him. He's down visiting his mother uh, down in Delaware. I have an amazing book in my library. Uh, it's called Living in the Hope of Glory. It's written by a French Protestant Reformed pastor uh, in the early to middle 1800s. Uh, the original title was called Farewells. Farewells. It is a book of 25 sermons. Now, many of you are probably thinking, Pastor Dan, can I borrow that, please? Actually, most of you are thinking, boring. Well, perhaps to many it is, but this book is more than a book of sermons, and it's really not boring at all. Adolphe Manot was stricken with terminal cancer when he was 52 years of age. This is a picture of him on the screen. And these sermons are essentially the last 25 sermons that he preached from his bed as his church family took turns filling up his bedroom until there was no more room. He would preach the sermon they would give him a little bit of rest, a little bit of something to drink, and the next group of his church family would come in and sit around his bed and listen to that pastor preach and teach the word of God. The last 25 sermons are to be taken very, very differently now, church. Pastor Manot is not trying to get through some book study. He's intentionally praying and preaching about what is of greatest importance eternally. He died at the age of 54. And Acts 1, verse 1 to 8 falls into much the same category. Jesus has resurrected from the dead, but he has not ascended to heaven. There are 40 days that elapse before he is ascended. And we need to ask ourselves, why? Why did he hang around for 40 more days? What was so important that he had to stay on earth when he could have very easily arisen from the dead, manifested himself to the disciples, and, and ascended? But he didn't do that. So there's something very, very important that we need to figure out and understand and even apply to our lives today as followers of Christ about the importance of those last 40 days that he spent with his disciples. So I want us to begin, if you would please, in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. If you have a Bible this morning, I encourage you to open it, or a Bible app on your phone, or if you have none, you're more than welcome to look on the screen this morning. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says this, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up into heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles that he had chosen. The former book that Luke was talking about is, of course, the Gospel of Luke. That's the record of Jesus' life, his birth. It's actually one of the only two birth narratives that we have in the Scripture. Matthew is the other one. So Luke starts at the very beginning when Joseph and Mary had him. And they, he moves through as we took 
uh, looked at when he was 12 years old, and now he's looking at the life of Christ, his healings, his teachings, his ministry, all the things that Jesus did leading up to the time of his crucifixion, his death for our sins, his burial, three days later, the resurrection. And at the end of Luke's gospel, he does talk about the commissioning of the 12 or the 11, because Judas had hung himself by then. He talks to them about what they were going to do by way of the message going out into the world to tell people about forgiveness of sins in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then he ends with the ascension of Jesus Christ. What I find important in the book of Acts, and by the way, if you study this theologically, Luke is never by himself. It's always a hyphenated book. Luke hyphenated or hyphen Acts. Luke and Acts always go together. The thing I love about this is as Luke talks to Theophilus, which in chapter one of his gospel is a very important figure, probably a, somebody high up in the Roman government, he calls him most excellent Theophilus in the gospels. What I find most intriguing is that in the gospels where Theophilus gets this sort of picture of who Jesus was all the way to the ascension, that Luke is not done with the story. Imagine if the gospel stopped there. They stopped with the, with the ascension. Jesus died for our sins, was buried, rose again on the third day. He witnessed, he was a witness to 500 individuals and the apostles, and then he goes to heaven. <laughs> now what? What do we do with that? What did the disciples do? Did they go back home? Did they just go back to fishing? Did they, did they start up a school someplace? Did they, did they find a little commune like the Essenes did up in the Dead Seas? Where, where did this thing go? You see, what Lucas after with Theophilus is, is to say, I want you to get a picture of that, of the end, and then I want you to get a picture of this. Does that make sense, church? I want to know how the gospel got out of Jerusalem and got to Burnville, Pennsylvania. I want to know how some teaching of 11 primarily, but we know 120 and others followed. I want to know how did it get from Jews to Gentiles? I want to know how it got across the seas. I want to know how did that happen. I want to know the effective power of Christ in a person's life that internally moves him to share the good news of Jesus Christ with someone else. That's what Luke is doing here. Luke is saying, Theophilus, Jesus died, was buried, and rose, but I got news, that is not the end of the story. There is so much more to this, to see the power of the risen Christ working himself out now in and through the power of the Holy Spirit so that this amazing phenomenon called Christianity takes place. And it's not a religion, by the way. It's an interconnectedness of relationships with people that follow Christ and help each other follow Christ. That's what this is about, Theophilus. That's what we're going after. That's what Theophilus needed to see. How could a bunch of uneducated fishermen, tax collectors, zealots, how could they make such a powerful impact to the point where they challenged the religious establishment and even Rome itself? 
How did that happen? I think we get an indication as we begin this study. Look with me at verse 3. After his suffering, that is Jesus, he presented himself to them and he gave many convincing proofs, proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of how many, church? 40 days, and spoke about the kingdom of God. This is critically important. What were the two most important things Jesus did over a 40-year, 40-year, 40-day period of time? We see them right up at the front. The first thing that Jesus did was he needed to convince his disciples of the resurrection. It is the linchpin of Christianity, is it not? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, you are, do you remember that passage? Most miserable of people. Why? Because you are still in your sins. Jesus' death didn't do anything. It was his resurrection that proved what his death did. And so the resurrection is a critical place in the disciples' life. And Jesus has to convince his disciples that he truly is resurrected from the dead. Just this week, I had something sent to me by way of just some apologetics. Somebody once again was trying to convince the rest of us that Jesus did not rise from the dead. It's an old argument, by the way, but some people think they're brilliant when they do this. And they say it was nothing more than group hallucination. It was power of suggestion. They were all in a place of sorrow and depression, and Peter, by word of kind of insinuation, sort of said he saw the resurrected Jesus, and all the other ones said, oh, oh, guess what? I did too. Mass hallucination. And then it spread as if it were true. That is so ridiculous, church. Do you not know that? It doesn't deal with an empty tomb. It doesn't deal with the, the lies that the soldiers are recorded saying to the religious leaders. It doesn't account for the personal encounter with Peter. It doesn't account for 500 people seeing Jesus at the same time and being able in that particular time to give witness of that. And by the way, don't think in a herd mentality. The, the way that we describe this in theology is very, very simple. I want to take three of you this morning and I want to put you in a situation where you see a car wreck, all right? You're a witness to a car wreck. The officer gets you, takes you to the side, and then he asks you what happened. Now, all three of you tell the officer the very same story, even using the same language, even though you're apart. What do you know? They're liars because no single person ever tells the same story when they see something. Isn't that true? That's exactly right. So if a police officer sees a crime and he's got three criminals and he puts them in the room and those criminals all give him the same exact story using the same exact words, they, you know they're a what, church? They're lying. That's why Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that's why they're always criticized. It's like, well, Matthew says this. It says there was two angels, but Luke says there was one. And Mark says this, and they're all different. Well, they're supposed to be. They're three men who've looked 
at these events with different eyes. That's actually the proof of their validity, by the way. That there are differences of opinion, different ways of looking at individual things. So this was not a hallucination. These were men and women who were giving distinctly different stories. But if I could bring you back to the car wreck, if all the witnesses were true, and yet they gave subtle different accounts, we can, though with certainty, say there was one thing true about all three witness testimonies, and it was what? There was a, there was a car wreck. That's what, this happens here. We can have all kinds of different testimonies, but the testimony that we bring together is Jesus rose from the dead. It is true. Lots of different ways people have brought that out, but there's a truth in this. And by the way, you will not die for something that you know is a lie, especially if you have to suffer a horrible death for that lie. And the disciples needed to be convinced that Jesus resurrected from the dead. Why? Because they are going to suffer and die for that truth. The second thing Jesus needs to teach them is, once again, the kingdom of God. No doubt he went back to his teaching on the mountain where he gave them the, the Beatitudes and the similitudes, maybe up to the upper room where he was teaching them about communion, all of those individual truths. Jesus now trying to bring them back together. I don't know if you remember this from school, but I remember it from as a student, but also as a professor. If I say things more than twice, guess what you know? going to be on the test. Absolutely. Jesus has said things over and over and over, and the guys are not getting the test here. And so once again, Jesus has to bring them in and do some coaching because he is leaving, and this message has to be incredibly clear on, on their heart and in their minds as well. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when people insult you. Blessed are you when people persecute you and say all kinds of evil things against you. Because of me. Why do you think Jesus was teaching them that? It's coming. Do you know what the message is? Do you understand what it means to be part of the kingdom and how to live that out? Guys, I need you to get this because you need to take it out to the rest of the world and teach them about the kingdom and how to live in that kingdom as well. Love one another as I have loved you for... They will know that you are my disciples by what, church? By love. Serve one another as I have served you. Be holy, be perfect. Love your enemies and do good to them. If the law says, thou shalt not murder, but I tell you, don't even do what? Don't hate your brother or your sister in your heart. The law says, thou shalt not commit adultery, but I tell you, if you even... Look with lust upon another person you've committed adultery in your heart. Be generous on every occasion as, as much as you can. Pray, but go in your closet and do it. Pray privately. Don't pray as the, 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 the Pharisees and the Sadducees do out in public trying to draw attention to themselves. 
Don't do those types of things. Don't worry about the necessities of life. Your Father in heaven knows what you need. He'll, he'll take care of you. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added unto them, church. Guys, I need you to get this. I need you to understand the kingdom because that's what you're going to be taking out to a world. This is what it means to be a citizen of heaven on earth. The kingdom of God's not something that you can point to and say it's over there or over here. It's a place where the reign and rule of God finds a home, where it finds a place in your heart and you're willing to walk now in that new kingdom. And yes, there's going to be a literal kingdom to come, but yet, oh, I forgot, there's one more critical thing, guys, you need to know. All the things I just told you, you are not going to be able to do a single one of them unless you have the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. You can't do it in the flesh. You've got to do it when the Spirit of God who is in you is working that thing out. By the way, that's how God gets the glory as well. Look with me at verses 4 and 5, if you would, please. On one occasion, this is interesting, while he was eating with them, what point did I disconnect to? The first one, that Jesus literally rose from the dead and is now alive because Jesus is doing what with his disciples? He's eating. Whether he needed to or not, I don't know, but I think this is one of those convincing proofs. It's, I sat down with you. I supped with you. I had breakfast and lunch. You remember that, guys. I'm not a ghost. While he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be, church, baptized with the Holy Spirit. What a major important issue. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, turning people from their sins to God, pointing people to Jesus. This is a different type of baptism. It's a baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is a baptism about empowerment to accomplish the mission that Jesus is now giving his disciples. You see, when we believe and receive that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he was God in the flesh, come down to this world, born of a virgin, living a perfect life without sin, so that he could die for us on the cross for our sins. He took those in our place. He took upon himself the wrath of God so that we didn't have to experience that. When he did that, God judged Christ in our place. He died, was buried, and rose again now is ascended at the right hand of the Father, when we believe the truth of the good news that our sins can be paid for, when we receive that, the Father gives us another gift. He gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit, the person. That's that indwelling person, the, the third person of the triune God. The Holy Spirit lives within me now. But there's a second part of this. It's a baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is the empowerment of that. Sometimes those things happen at the same time. Sometimes they don't for particular purposes. And we're going to see that as we study the book of Acts. Where people receive Jesus, but they don't receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In fact, they say to Peter, Paul, and John, we don't even know there exists a Holy Spirit. 
So we'll have to work through that, some of that theological tension as we move forward. All that to say is that the Holy Spirit needs to be part of this process, and that's what Jesus is trying to help them understand in that 40-day journey. If you remember back in John, last week's sermon, when Jesus was with the, the 11, he was in the upper room. It says that Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. That was that born again, indwelling reception of the Holy Spirit. And now we're going to find the other side of this as we get to Acts 1 and into Acts 2. And we'll talk about the reason for the, the, uh, the division in regards to that. So Jesus has just talked to the disciples. He's trying to convince them of his literal, personal resurrection, that he's a person. He's trying to convey them about the kingdom of God. And in particular, he wants them to know that they don't have to do this on their own, that the Holy Spirit is going to be the power that usually, or not usually, that comes upon them so that they can go out and do the things that, that Jesus is teaching them. And the disciples, as always, Straight over the head, look with me at verse 6, if you would please. Then they gathered around him and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They got the kingdom part sort of right, but not really, because Jesus said, guys, I just talked to you about empowerment and the things that you're going to do, and you're going back to default mode, and you're heading back to this Jewish sense of the kingdom. That's not what this is about. There's something larger that you need to get. Look at me at the next verse, next two. Then he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the duties or, or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive church power. That's the connecting word with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's the empowerment and it's empowerment to do what? Look at the verse. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my church. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit has to do with empowerment and empowerment to do what, church? To witness, to share the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ to anyone that you meet. And then he gives the disciples the grander view it's going to start in Jerusalem, guys. But then it's going to go to Judea. And then it's going to go out farther to places that you don't want it to go and you don't think it should go and you're surprised that it does go there. The dreaded, wicked Samaritans. The people you despise and you walk around their whole area because you don't even want to set foot on their ground. Those people are going to know Christ too. By the way, you're going to see that in Acts 9. And all the way, church to Burnville, Pennsylvania, the ends of the earth. Can you imagine the disciples thinking about that? Burnville wasn't in, even in existence then. But can you imagine talking to one of the disciples showing up from Burnville and going to the Middle East and going, you're not going to believe this, but the gospel got to us. All the way to our shores because of faithful people who were baptized by the Holy Spirit, who were empowered to do something in their natural flesh they wouldn't do and shy away from, but they did it because they were bold and because they had the power of God, they became what? Witnesses. This great and wonderful truth that God has put before us. Amazing. 
I want to talk to you about three things as we close. The first one is this. Are you convinced of Jesus' resurrection? And you know, I really gave this a lot of thought when I was putting these three points together. Um, because this is an Easter message, isn't it? It's really what it is. We, we hit on it one time of year, and we show up at a sunrise service and have really great breakfast with each other, and then afterwards have a great Sunday school program and a great musical. That's what that day is about for us. But I want to challenge you not to only appreciate those things that we do, but I really need to focus on that particular question because if you're not convinced of that, your faith is shot. Can I get an amen on that? If you are not convinced that Jesus Christ rose from the dead in the words of Paul, you are the most miserable of people because you are still in your sin. And it's just not about assenting to it, by the way. It's not just saying, well, yeah, I believe that. No, 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 no. What's the key word I'm after there? Are you, are you convinced of that? Is that something that's so far down deep in you that you won't let that go no matter what? How many of you remember Columbine? Do you remember that shooting in the school? I can't even remember how old that was. How long ago was that? 20 years ago. Amazing. I remember reading the book that came out of that by that young girl. Was it her father that wrote that? Who, in the hallway of that school, with a gun pointed straight at her forehead, the shooter asked her a question. What did he ask her? Do you believe in Jesus? Now, what do you think he meant by that? Do you mean, do I believe in the historical Jesus that Eusebius and Josephus wrote about? Well, sure. Well, I'm pretty sure she wasn't thinking about that, and nor was he. That question was designed very specifically to say, are you a follower of Christ? And guess what that linchpin is that is in regards to that? Do you believe, are you convinced of the resurrection of Jesus Christ or do you have a dead religious God? Because I'm not willing to die for the latter, but I am willing to die for the former. Are you convinced of Jesus' resurrection so much so that you are willing to suffer and die for that truth? It's a question to ponder, church. It's the most critical part of the gospel story. There are many dead messiahs out there in this world, but only one who was historically raised from the dead. And his name is Jesus Christ. So don't rush over that point, please, because it is the cornerstone. It is the essence of your faith. Do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Amen. Let me give you the second. Do you understand what it means for the kingdom of God to be lived out on earth? And are you practicing that in your daily lives? Ouch. When people look at you, do they say or think, you know, there's, there's something different about that person. They're, they're must, they must not be from around here. I think I've used this illustration before, but it's worthy of using again. When Deb and I were in Alpena, Michigan, I was actually heading to Syria at that time. I was getting my passport uh, work around uh, to be cleared for that. We went to the courthouse in Alpena, Michigan. I was getting all this stuff stamped and all my 
uh, entry visas and documents in proper place. And uh, when the, the person waiting on me gave me that stuff, she said, you're not from here, are you? So what do you mean by that? I've been living in Alpena for eight years. I, I've been in the courthouse hundreds of times for prayer meetings. What do you mean? I said, why do you say that? She said, you're too nice. I'm too nice? Yes, you're too nice. You say thank you. You say my upbringing, yes ma'am, yes sir. You're, you're polite when you're addressing people. She said, we don't do that around here. <laughs> so, okay. Do you, know, do you know a kind word can set you apart? It doesn't have to be something massive. It, it can just simply be a, a kind word. Uh, uh, somebody saying thank you. Somebody saying, you know, I appreciate what you did for me. It, it doesn't take much, church, to be able to manifest that you don't live in this kingdom that's run by the devil. I may be in this world, but I'm in a different kingdom than all God's people said, please. I'm in the kingdom of God. Oh, really? Whoops. I know I said that out loud. So now I'm accountable. Yes, you are, Dan. So pray for me, because I'm working my salvation out. I'm not working for my salvation. I'm saved because of the blood of Christ. But now he says, now you need to work that out so that people know that you are a follower of Christ in this kingdom so that they say, you're not from here, are you? That's the key question for that. There's something different about you. There's something different about your person, the, your mannerisms, the way that you think, the way that you speak, the way that your values are driven. Whatever that may be that is lined up with the kingdom of God, are you pursuing that in your life? That's what Jesus is trying to get the disciples to understand in those 40 days. It's what he's trying to help us to understand now in these latter days. Third one, have you been baptized by the Holy Spirit and empowered to be a witness for Jesus in your particular life context? If you're saved, you should be. Because that's the gift that's given. It's the norm. And it should be visibly manifested in your life and ministry. This is another point with me personally that maybe you can resonate with. There are a lot of times that I try to do things and I end up falling back to my default mechanisms, which is I do them in the flesh. And then I'm frustrated or I'm angry or I'm disappointed or I don't know, put whatever words you want to put in there. When you operate as a follower of Christ and you operate in the flesh, you're doomed to failure. That's why God calls us to this, to understand this, that if you're going to proceed to do the things that kingdom followers do, it has to flow out of the Holy Spirit within you. And all God's people said with me, please. It has to. It's the only way that it works. I cannot love my enemies. It won't happen in the flesh. It never will. If I try to do it, I know my flesh will creep up. But if I love my enemies in the power of the Holy Spirit... Oh, no, that's a completely different thing. That'll happen because I'm not the one doing it. It's the Spirit of God doing it. Does that make sense, church? So these are the three things I think that in those 40 days, Jesus was, 
hour in and hour out trying to convey to his disciples because in 40 days he's going to do what? He's going to ascend and he's personally not going to be here and he needs to convey to them even though I leave you, Hebrews 13, I will never leave you nor forsake you. How can he say that? Because he gives us his spirit that lies within us. It's the power we have to do the things that God has called us to do and to do them with great victory and great success. Those are the things that God, that Jesus wanted his disciples to know this morning. Those are the things that God wants us to know this morning. Do you have a firm conviction that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? It's part of your faith. If you don't have that, you don't have the faith. Where are you at in the kingdom living? Are you working that out? Are you finding areas that you say, Holy Spirit, that's still broken. I need it fixed. Help me, please. I need to find progress in this area of my life. Third, have you been baptized by the Holy Spirit? Do you have the power to do what God has called you to do because you are a follower of Christ and because you've been empowered by the Holy Spirit? Those are three great questions as we close together in prayer. Let's do that together, shall we? Father, we give you thanks today. Thank you for Jesus. Thanks. Thank you so much for letting him hang around. I think the, the gentleman in his, in his uh, circle really needed that time to be convinced that he truly was resurrected from the dead and to be convinced of the truths of the good news that there is a kingdom that has entered this world. It's a spiritual kingdom that they are a part of. So they are in the world, but not of the world. All those powerful things, Lord. They're things we need to keep working out so that people out in the world can say, you know what, you're different. You're not like someone else. You're kind when you speak. Your values are different. I don't know what small thing that is, Lord, that we need to work on, but that will make a sizable difference in creating the question in those who are around. You're not different. You're not from here, are you? And the third one, Lord, is, Father, would you forgive us for working in the flesh? And oftentimes, Father, we, we try to go about your work and your business thinking we know how to do it because we've done it before or because we're strong. And Holy Spirit, we neglect you and we push you out to the side and it ends up in failure, it ends up in frustration, it ends up in dead works. It doesn't do anything our hearts desire. And so, Father, we pray that we would truly have the baptism of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that we would have the power of God to go out into our world and to witness, either verbally by sharing the gospel or by our lives. At the end of the day, it all points to Jesus, and that's our prayer. So help us with that, we pray. You've given this, this amazing gift in the Holy Spirit. You've provided for us, so there's no excuse. We just need to follow the gift that you've given to us. You've given us another prayer, Father. Jesus gave it to his disciples. I wonder if he went over that as well. Maybe as we pray this prayer, maybe we can think about that, Father, that, that maybe Jesus gave them this prayer one more time and said, don't forget this. You don't have to pray it word for word, but pray about what it means and the categories that it rests on. We are reminded of that as we pray together. Our Father, 
who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Hallelujah. Father, bless your people today. Bless them in their bodies, physically, Father. Let no sickness or disease come, Father. Would you set us out apart from that? But if it comes, Lord, draw near to us. Let us understand why you allowed it, why it came in. Teach us the deep truths that we need to know that sick, when sickness comes. But we pray for deliverance, Father, for it. Um, your word says we don't have because we haven't asked. And so we're asking for health and well-being. We pray, Father, for our, our minds, that we would have the mind of Christ, that we would think about the things that we studied today, about his resurrection, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, the teachings of the kingdom, all those wonderful things. Lord, give us the mind that focuses on that which is eternal. Let us walk in obedience as Jesus did as well. And be with our spirits, Lord, that you would draw nigh to us, that you would draw close to us. And let us really realize that, God, you're not up and out there, that as a follower of Christ, you're in here. Oh, God, what an amazing truth that is. We thank you for it. Bless us, Father, as your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Oh.